Would you bow and pray with me before we start? Father God, we are so thankful to you for this morning, this afternoon, that we can be together as a church, even giving us this place to gather uh, where we can sing praises to you, when we can proclaim your word, when we can hear what it is that you have prepared for us. I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who rescues us from our sin, and you are the one who gives us rest. You're the one who gives us freedom to live. You're the one who has delivered us from the sin that held us. And you're the one who gives us eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for this amazing message of the gospel that we sing about, that we proclaim, that this book is all about. I pray, Lord, now that as we go to your word, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully. Spirit of God, I ask that you would work in our hearts to receive this. And I pray that if there is anyone here who is denying the gospel, if there is anyone here who has not believed the gospel, if anyone will ever hear this who is not clear about who you are and what it is that you have done for that sinner, I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious and by your spirit move in that heart and bring regeneration and salvation. I pray that you would help us to rejoice that we've been given eyes to see and that we see and understand this. We see Jesus Christ who has been crucified, died on our behalf and rose on the third day and gave us life. Pray that you bless this time in your word. May we be encouraged and built up by your truth. For your glory, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. And our verses today are verses 1 through 5 in the message entitled, Fools Deny the True Gospel. Now we have worked our way through the first, chapter, first two chapters, and now we're approaching the next major section of the book, you remember when we did the introduction, we gave you an outline that we're following through this book. And just by way of reminder, remember that chapter 1, the first 10 verses, was Paul's introduction to this book. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 2, was Paul's vindication of his ministry. He spent entire almost two chapters defending himself and his ministry. And the reason why he did that is because if you can dismiss Paul, you can dismiss the gospel that he preached. And that's why it was necessary for him to do that. That's why he spent that time. And now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, going all the way to chapter 5, verse 1, is going to be this next major section, the doctrinal section, vindication of the gospel. In the previous two chapters, Paul outlined the gospel that he preached. And now he's going to give us a doctrinal defense of the, that gospel. Chapter 5, two, chapter five, beginning in verse 2, all the way through chapter 6, verse 10, we're going to focus on the application of the gospel. So if you understood what the gospel of grace is, what impact does that have in your life? That's that section beginning in chapter 5, verse 2. And then in chapter 6, verse 11 through 18, you have the conclusion to the book. Now today we're starting the second doctrinal section in which Paul outlines his defense of the gospel. What I want to do right now is I want us to read the five verses that we're going to study and then I want to make a few cursory observations before we dive into our text. So if you look at Galatians chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 1. Five verses, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So then, 
Does he who provide does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The reason why we titled this section here, these verses here, Fools Deny the True Gospel, because as you can see in our text, Paul uses the word foolish at least twice. The word foolish that you see here, oh foolish Galatians, and in verse 3 he says, are you so foolish? This word is used at least six times in the New Testament. You remember when Jesus is uh, confronting the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he turns to them in, Galatia, in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, he says, Oh, foolish man and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to how Paul used it elsewhere. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, he says, But to those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and the snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we all once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. The last two uses of this word are in our text. Now, based on all of these verses that we just read, we can conclude that foolishness is not an intellectual problem, but a moral one. You see, when Jesus confronted the disciples on the road to Emmaus, these two men did not have a problem with their intellect. That was not the problem. When Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, that we, will all, we were all once foolish, he's not saying that we were all somehow mentally deficient. We were all morally deficient. So foolishness is not a mental problem. It is a moral problem. You see, a foolish person is someone who fails to use the intelligence they have to perceive the truth. Foolishness is mental laziness. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now this is consistent with the Old Testament because you have verses like Psalm 14.1 where we read, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Fool has said in his heart. Bible doesn't believe in atheists. And the reason why Bible doesn't believe in atheists is because there are no such people. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. All men have this innate knowledge. So everyone knows that there is God. Therefore, those who claim to be atheists, they fail to use the resources and abilities that God has given them and the revelation that he has given to them, and therefore they're fools. When Paul says, Galatians, you are foolish, he's saying that you are failing to exercise the discernment that you need to have. You've been given truth, you've been given intellect, you've been given mind, but you are too lazy to perceive the truth. That's why it is foolish to deny the gospel. Because if you think through what you are denying, you are a fool. Now notice the second observation. Notice where Paul begins his defense of the gospel. Notice what he appeals to in this text. That's why I read it in the beginning. He appeals to their experience. Now that is interesting because if you have been here for any length of time, 
You probably heard that we put very little stock in your experience when it comes to interpreting the truth and interpreting the Bible. You see, your experience might be a supernatural work or might be bad pizza from previous night. So your experience is not the ultimate guide to truth. See, the Word of God must interpret your experience and not the other way around. However, as we read this text, this cautions us not to dismiss experience altogether. Because you see, the truth that you hear and the truth that you believe, it must be lived out. And lived out truth is experience. You see, if you are genuinely converted, if you have genuinely believed the gospel, there is going to be an outward expression of your faith. Bible tells us that internal faith without external expression is a dead faith. So therefore, everyone who has experienced the gospel will have certain experience that will prove whether that happened or it didn't. And that is what Paul does in this text. He takes Galatians back to the time when they got saved. And he says, I want you to go back and I want you to reflect on your experience that you had. Now, if we just read the text in the first five verses, or first six verses here, first five, you have, in our translation, you have six questions. In Greek, it's five questions here. And we can take these six questions. Notice he asks the question and never answers them in this text. And we can take them and we can summarize them with two other questions. First question is this. Paul says, how did you get saved? How did you get saved? Now, this question has to do with their past experience. When he asked this question in the first two verses, he said, basically, hey, how did you get saved? I want you to think back to the moment when you were converted. And tell me, how did you get saved? And he gives two options how that might happen. And then the second question that he asks is, how are you being sanctified? How are you being sanctified? So question number one is, how did you get saved? Question number two is, how are you being sanctified? Now let's examine these two questions that Paul asks in this text. Question number one, how did you get saved? Now notice Paul begins with this emotional address. He begins here in verse one and he says, you foolish Galatians. Some of you might be reading a different translation because literally it says, oh foolish Galatians. That is exactly how Jesus rebuked the two disciples on the road. Oh foolish man and slow of heart to believe. Now, when you say something, oh, wow, it's like saying, I am amazed. You can see Paul, Paul's emotion. He's like, how in the world is this possible? All foolish Galatians. Notice, this is not just name-calling or name-dropping by Paul. Because he's confronting them because they were acting in a foolish manner. They were behaving as fools. Now, notice how general this term is. He doesn't say, oh, foolish brothers and sisters. The previous time he addressed them was in chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, For I would have you know, brethren. Now he switches and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. I mean, based on what he's going to say later on, Paul was wondering if some of them were not really brethren. If some of them just believe and then they abandoned the gospel and they were not really saved. Because there is this question, what happened to you? Were you genuinely converted? Were you genuinely saved? Paul was perplexed, and here was the question that caused his perplexity. Look at verse 1 again. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly 
portrayed as crucified. This word bewitched is an interesting term. It is used only once in the New Testament. And Paul is saying, listen, it seems as if you are acting under a spell. As if someone casts some spell upon you so that you can think rationally and you can make wise decision. These false teachers that came in, they had sway over their mind. Now we can see how this is relevant today. Because I'm sure all of you know somebody who has been carried away by some kind of a weird cult or weird doctrine or goes to some kind of weird place or weird church, right? And you're trying to communicate with them, right? And you're trying to tell them the truth, right? Like simple truths. And you can't get through them. It is as if they're under a spell and they're like, I mean, don't you see? I mean, it's so clear. It's right here in the text. And they can't see. They can't see. Because they're blinded. It's like as if they're under, as if they've been bewitched. And that's why some people who actually get out of that, then they look back at their experiences like, how in the world did I believe that? Was I like not thinking rationally? And in fact, you weren't thinking rationally. Because if you were thinking rationally, you wouldn't believe that. And that's what Paul is saying here. Galatians, what are you doing? What are you doing? It is as if you are under a spell and you're making a foolish decision. But notice, they were not off the hook because someone bewitched them. It's not like, man, sorry, you're just poor, this little victim. Somebody came along, swept you away, you're not responsible. No, he says, you foolish Galatians. They were responsible for not being diligent. That was their responsibility. They acted foolishly, and because they acted foolishly, they were swayed by false teachers. Now, Paul wondered if they were somehow hypnotized by false doctrine. Now, notice how personal their experience of Christ was when they got saved. Look at the verse again. He says, Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? You see, Jesus was not literally crucified before their eyes. But when Paul came, he preached the gospel in such a way, it was almost as if they saw Jesus Christ crucified. The word is interesting. He says Jesus Christ was pro-agrafo. Pro means before agrafo to write. It's like he got in front of them and he painted this picture of Christ before them. And he says, you yourselves with your own eyes saw Jesus Christ. You, I painted him for you in vivid colors and you saw him. The message was the message of a crucified Christ. See, that's what the message of the gospel is. The message of the gospel is not come to Jesus and all is going to be well and your life is going to be great. No, the message of the gospel is that there is crucified Savior. Why was he crucified? He was crucified for your sin. And notice he says, listen, Galatians, you were not confused about that? Because I was the one who preached the gospel to you. And I, I told you already, received this gospel from Jesus Christ himself. I clearly authentically preached the gospel to you. I painted the portrait of Christ before you, and you saw Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet, you were bewitched. I mean, this is a warning for all of us who know the gospel. This is the truth. You might know the gospel. You might understand the gospel right now. But you see, if you're not alert, if you're not grounded in the truth, you can fall prey to false teachers. Now, sure, they cannot rob you of your salvation if you're genuinely saved. But you know what? You can be bogged down with false doctrine and you could be ineffective in your ministry to the Lord because you're carried away or swayed, at least for a period of time. Who has bewitched you? Now, what's the answer to this question? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. 
doesn't matter who has bewitched you. The, the, the point here is that you were bewitched. And in this case, it was these false teachers who came into the church and who started telling them that, listen, believing in the simple gospel of a crucified Savior is not enough. You've got to keep the law. You've got to get circumcised. That's what you need to do. And they bewitched him. Notice in verse 2, he zeroes in further. And he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Again, this is a rhetorical device. It's not like that's the only thing he wants to find out from them because he's going to ask him a whole lot of other things later on. He said, I want to find out. Let me get to the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the matter. This is what I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit is another way of saying, how did you get saved? How did you get saved? You were a pagan living in a pagan land, and I came to you, and you received the Spirit. You see, if you do not have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So every Christian has a Spirit. And when do you receive the Spirit? At the moment of your conversion. When you are converted, first of all, you have to be regenerated by the Spirit. He has to give you life. He has to give you life. You are regenerated by Him. You are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. You are sealed with the Spirit. You are anointed with the Spirit. You are filled with the Spirit. And Paul says, listen, go back to that time at the very beginning, at the beginning of your Christian walk, and tell me, what did you do to receive the Spirit? How were you saved? And he gives two options. Two options. Option number one, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Now, we saw this phrase earlier. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 16, look at the verse. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. This phrase, works of the law, is used twice in our text. And if you skip down to chapter 3, verse 10, it is used again. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So basically, this phrase, works of the law, refers to obedience to the Mosaic law. Because in our text here, he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. This is the law that Moses gave to the nation of Israel. So here's your first option. You got saved by keeping Mosaic law. Option number two. You got saved by hearing with faith. Now notice the contrast here. The contrast is by you doing the works of the law. It is contrasted with hearing with faith. Hearing with faith simply means believing. Believing the message. Where does faith come from? Where does belief come from? Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the works of Christ. So let's paraphrase this question. Did you get saved by doing the works or by believing my message? Now, this is not a tricky question. This is just saying, hey, go back to your experience and figure out, did you get saved because you were doing this, that, and the other, or because I came to you and I preached the gospel to you and you believed what I said? You see, Paul's message when he came there 
was not keep the law and you will be saved. That was not his message. His message was believe in the one who has kept the law for you. Listen to Acts chapter 13. This was Paul preaching in one of these churches of Galatia, Pisidian, Antioch, or a place where the church was established. This is conclusion to his sermon, Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Notice, even when he showed up there the first time, he was already making this conscious. Guys, you cannot be saved by keeping the law. You cannot be freed by doing something. What you have to do is you have to believe in the one who can give you freedom. And Paul says, I came to you and I preached that message to you. And guess what? You heard it and you believed. Now Paul is not asking this because he does not know. He's asking because he was there when they were converted. He was the one who preached the gospel to them. He was the one who shared this message with them. And they heard and they accepted Christ and they believed. And Paul appeals to their experience. And he says, go back to the day when you were saved. And in light of that, what are you doing now? Why are you abandoning the message that saved you? That's why he says, this is foolishness. This is foolishness. You got saved not by doing anything. And now you're going back to the law. You receive the spirit apart from the law. I mean, think about this. A lot of these pagans, they didn't even know anything about the law. When Paul showed up there the first time, he preached Christ to them, right? And he explained them the, truth to, the truth to them. He, I mean, obviously, he appealed to creation. He appealed to general revelation. And so these people, they just heard the message for the first time that there is one who could save them, and they believed. And then only later on when someone comes along and says, by the way, there's this rich history, 1,400 years. There was Mosaic law. And by the way, you have to keep that law. They only learn of that later. And Paul says, you didn't even know about that. And you believe the message of the gospel without ever hearing about the law. You receive the Spirit apart from accepting any of those rules and obligations. How is it that now you're turning back to what those false teachers have taught you? So, according to Paul, it is foolish to deny the gospel. It is foolish to deny the gospel. Only fools deny the gospel, and all who deny the gospel are fools. And anyone who has a problem with that can take it off with Paul. That's what he says. If you abandon the gospel of grace, you are a fool. And you know why they do that? Because fools will look at the gospel of grace, and they will consider it foolishness. It will sound stupid to them. Listen to 1 Corinthians. You know this text well. But Paul makes the same point. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, 
and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. You see, if the message of the free grace seems foolish to you, that is just indicative of the fact that you are a fool. Because, you see, it is epitome of foolishness to consider yourself wiser than God. And it was God's plan to devise such a plan of salvation where you receive the gospel as a free gift of grace apart from doing any works. So, Galatians, how did you get saved? You got saved by believing the message that I preached to you. Question number two. How are you being sanctified? Look at verse three. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, this is really one question here. And notice that the assertion of this question gives an answer to the previous question that he asked. Notice he says, having begun by the Spirit. Now, Paul is telling him, uh, let me answer you the previous question. I told you that you began your Christian life by the power of the Spirit and through the work of the Spirit. You've heard the message of the gospel preached in the power of the Spirit. You have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You were baptized. You were sealed. You were anointed. You were filled. And the question is, what are you trying to do now? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, if the first two questions dealt with how did you get saved, the next four questions, they deal with what do you do now as you continue to grow in your sanctification? Are you now growing in holiness by doing the works of the law? So in the first two verses, Paul debunks the fact that you can be saved by keeping the law. And in the next three verses, Paul debunks the idea that you can be sanctified by keeping the law. You see, there are, these two errors are prevalent today. Because some people will claim that, you know, you have to do certain things to be saved whether that's keep the law or they replace it with other things. And others will say, well, sure, you can be saved by keeping the law. But guess what? Once you're saved, according to the Bible, you get the Holy Spirit. And now that you have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit can empower you to keep the law of God. And for the first time, you can obey God's law. What's Paul's answer to this? Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How in the world could you ever think that the works that you perform in your flesh can be superior to those that the Spirit of God can perform in you? One commentator titled this section this way, You were running well until you said, I do it myself. You see, doing even the right things in the power of the flesh, is saying, oh, I can sanctify myself. I can do it. This is sanctification by works, otherwise known as legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is earning God's favor according to your own rules and your power. That's what it is. It's earning God's favor, or you can say earning God's merit, or merit before God according to your own rules, and according to your own power. You see, what legalists do 
is they create system and they create rules for themselves and for others, which they then try to keep in their own power to somehow earn favor with God. Now, what happened here? In this case, they took the law of God, the law of Moses, which God gave to Moses, which was never intended to sanctify anyone, and they said, now we're going to try to keep this law in order to score points with God. What was the problem with that? Well, problem number one, as a Christian, you can please God, but you can't earn favor or acceptance with God by your obedience. You can and you should please God by your obedience. But remember that your obedience does not earn favor or acceptance with God. How do you get accepted by God? Not because you obey. Not because of anything that you do. You are accepted by God because he accepts Christ and you are in Christ. You are accepted because of the work of Christ. And that acceptance has nothing to do with your performance. Your acceptance and your standing before God, your position before God is not contingent upon your obedience. Problem number two, you cannot devise another system for sanctification other than walking by the Spirit, which will be elaborated on later on in these chapters. See, there's only one way how you can become Christ-like. There's only one way for you to grow in holiness. And that is to walk, being, to be led by the Spirit, and to do the things that the Spirit does through you. You see, you can create your own rules, but they're your rules. They're not God's rules. You can even borrow some of God's rules and say, this is going to be my standard, or this is how I'm going to sanctify myself. But guess what? If God did not intend for you to keep those rules, you are misusing even His rules. Now, in this case here, they took the law of God, Mosaic law, and they said, now if you, want, if you want to improve your standing before God, or if you want to be accepted by God, you have to keep that law to grow in holiness and to secure your standing before God. And guess what? They were misusing it. It was never intent of the law to do that. And this leads to the third problem. You don't have God's power to keep your own rules. And therefore, you must rely on yourself alone you see what if you devise a system and you say well in order for me to be holy i have to do this that and the other and you create all those rules and guess what if those rules are not god's rules do you think god is going to supply your power to be obedient to those rules no no because those are your rules those are not god's rules and so if you think that somehow you're going to be accepted by god because you have your own system you can't so even in this case, if you say, well, now that I have the Spirit, I'm going to take Mosaic Law, and I'm going to obey it because, I mean, obviously it comes from God. These are God's rule. I'm going to obey the law now. Question, is God going to empower you to do that? No. Because that was not God's job. That's not his intent. That's not why he gave you that law. That's not why he gave the law to Israelites. And there's much more about the law even in this chapter. So you can't even take those rules that God has not given to you and make a system for yourself by which you're going to improve your standing before God or grow in sanctification. See, that's why legalists are very often guilt-ridden. Because they create system and rules for themselves which they cannot keep and they have no power to keep. And when they fail 
keeping those rules, then they have guilt. Because they violate their own conscience. Because they bind themselves by these rules and these outward standards that they put for themselves. And rather than actually being free and living in the gospel, they have devised these systems and these rules where thou shalt wear this or not wear that or go here or not watch that. And so every time they break that man-made rule, and obviously they're going to break them because they don't have the power of the Spirit to keep their man-made religion. And they will break it and they will always live in guilt. And that's what he's saying here. That is exactly, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish that now that the Spirit of God has redeemed you, now that the Spirit of God has sanctified you, now that the Spirit of God dwells in you and empowers you to do what God commands you to do, and you're going to say, well, thank you very much. It was a very good start. I really appreciate that, but I got it from here on out. That's foolish. It's like little children, right? Once they begin to walk around, oh, I got this. I do it myself. And what happens? You fall on your face right away. That's what Paul's saying here. You are so foolish. Now, we have to balance this and make sure that we say this. Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying in this text that you are not involved in your sanctification. And the Spirit of God will somehow mystically sanctify you. No. You've heard this many times, right? It is faith alone that saves. But faith that saves is never alone. I mean, it is clear all throughout the Bible that genuine salvation will result in works. Genuine salvation will be, out, will be expressed outwardly. But guess what? The works that you perform as a Christian, those are not works of the flesh that he talks about here. But those are works of faith. And there is a distinction between that. Listen to how Paul commands Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Notice, your work of faith. These are not works in the flesh. MacArthur summarizes this beautifully when he writes, The validity of good works in God's sight depends on whose power they are done in and for whose glory. When they are done in the power of the Spirit and for His glory, they are beautiful and acceptable to Him. When they are done in the power of the flesh, for the sake of personal recognition or merit, they are rejected by Him. Legalism is separated from true obedience by attitude. The one is rotten smell in God's nostrils, whereas the other is sweet savor. That's what it is. Because you see, even your best works, they do not enhance your standing before God. You cannot go beyond being a child of God and an heir with Christ. And that happens to you at the moment when you are saved. When the Spirit of God indwells you, He adopts you into His family. And He says, now everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. You can't improve upon that. Now, sanctification consists of following God's commands in the power of the Spirit and for His glory. Not making up your own rules and your own path to sanctification. Now, furthermore, if you look at verse 4, Paul says that to insist on sanctification by works is to put in question your initial salvation. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? 
Paul reflects back on his experience and even on their experience. We know that Paul's preaching there in that region was accompanied by sufferings. Because in the same chapter, in Acts chapter 13, we'll read this of Pisidian Antioch. Verse 50 says, But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and, ins uh, and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now that's what happened when Paul preached the gospel to these people to whom he's now writing. And I think it's safe to assume that if Paul was persecuted, those who followed his message were likewise persecuted to some degree. And Paul says, I want you to go back and think back. And by the way, it hasn't been a long time. It's been less than two years since that happened. I mean, can you remember what happened two years ago? You suffered because you accepted the message that I preached to you. And the question is, did you suffer so many things in vain? Was it in vain? I mean, how can your sufferings be in vain? I mean, you can imagine a scenario where a gospel comes to a certain place and someone is converted, believes the gospel, and as a result of that, suffers persecution. He suffers persecution, pain, perhaps loses his property, finances, freedom, and anything else. And eventually, the wave of persecution subsides, and that person kind of gets into the rut. He gets into his casual Christian life. And then over time, through his lack of discernment, or perhaps through the influence of false teachers, as happened here, he begins to embrace some other gospel. He begins to, begins to embrace some other doctrine that says, you know what, it's not just by faith. And he denies the true gospel. Now imagine that person who dies in that state, and he stands before God, and he says, well, do you remember that back in the day, you know, I, I, I suffered? Are his suffering going to worth anything on the last day? No. No, why? Because if you deny the gospel, it does not matter what you suffer. Because you don't get saved because of your sufferings. You get saved because you believe the gospel. And Paul says, look at your life. Look at the things that you've given up. Look at the sufferings that you have endured for his name. And now if you abandon the gospel, if you turn on the truth that I preach to you, it's all going to be worthless. It's not going to do any good. You just suffered in vain. But notice, he didn't lose all hope for them because he says, if indeed it was in vain. It is as if Paul kind of holds back and he says, listen, I, I hope it wasn't in vain. I hope you didn't waste your life and waste your time and waste your resources. I hope you return to the gospel and so your sufferings will not be in vain. Now in verse 5, he moves back into the present. He says, think back of what happened when you got saved. But now think about right now. Look at verse 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now notice how every person of the Trinity is involved here. In verse 1, you had Jesus Christ who was publicly portrayed as crucified. In verse 2, you have them receiving the Spirit because they have accepted the gospel of the crucified Savior. And now here, Paul introduces them to the Father. And he could have said just, Father. But notice the description that he gives. He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you. The Spirit comes because he's sent by the Father and the Son. And he says here, does he who provides you with the Spirit. Notice the tense. 
Not he who provided you in the past with the Spirit. But he says, look at your life right now. In the present time, because it's not that all of them turn on the gospel. He says, look at your church. The way you operate and the things that are happening in the church, are they happening there because God is at work there or because you all decided to keep the law? Why are they happening? This is an ongoing ministry. The Father continues to supply His Spirit. Notice He says, God desires to supply His Spirit and His power so that you could live the life of freedom. Does He will provide you with the Spirit? Now, Spirit is the answer to all of your prayers. I found an interesting text. You can open there or you can just listen. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. Listen to this. Jesus is talking. He says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, that's pretty broad, right? Ask, seek, knock. I mean, you might have all kinds of different requests for this, that, or the other. And then Jesus says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is, uh, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, listen to this, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, in whatever circumstance you are, what you need is the presence and power from the Spirit. And he says here, my Father will grant you the Spirit when you come and you ask and you knock and you seek. And when my Spirit come, comes, then he resolves the whatever situation you are in. Now you take this and you bring it back into our text. And Paul says, is he who, he who right now provides you with the Spirit... He who sustains you right now, he who gives you life and everything that you need for this life, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice not only that, he works miracles among you. Remember, this is the first generation church. Everything you read in the book of Acts, because at this time they don't have completed scripture. Galatians is the very early book that is written. They have prophets, they have gift of tongues, they have interpretation of tongues, they have miracles, they have signs, they have wonders. All of that is happening in their church. And Paul is asking them, how is that happening? Is it happening because you are so committed to Mosaic Law? Is that what happened? Or is it because the Spirit of God mightily works among you? Does He do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Is it because you believe the gospel and because the Spirit of God works in and through you? Or is it because you're so committed to the law? Now Paul knows the answer to that. And they know the answer to that. And anyone who is genuinely converted in those churches, if they were to read this and they were to look at their experience and they're like, yeah, the Spirit was at work even before these guys showed up and preached a different message. The Spirit is even now working through people who don't believe what they're teaching because not everybody fell for this. If you were to examine your past experience and your present experience, you would know that it has nothing to do with the law of Moses. 
you would know it has nothing to do with the works, but it has all to do with the message that you heard. So what's the point of these five verses? You are neither saved nor are you sanctified through the law of Moses. The whole dispute that they had in the previous chapter, whether Gentiles have to obey Mosaic law, whether they have to get, whether they have to get circumcised or eat certain foods or not eat certain foods. Paul told to Peter, listen, Peter, we set those things aside because we believed in Christ. And in Christ, we're not obligated to do any of that because all of that has already been fulfilled. Salvation is a result of believing in the crucified Savior, period, end of story. Nothing else needs to be done. You believe in the gospel. You believe in the crucified Savior. And why is the crucified Savior? Because the payment for sin is death. He died on the cross because you deserve to die. All you have to do is confess your sin and trust in the Savior. You see, salvation is a gift. You can't work for it, and you don't have to pay it off. It's a gift that is graciously given to you for simply believing the gospel. And even the fact that you believe is a gift, because faith is a gift of God that he gives to you. It's not even something that you generate. It's something that he generates in you. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by doing anything. You're saved by believing the gospel. And guess what? Neither are you sanctified by keeping Mosaic law, even though now you have the Spirit of God. See, we're not to return to the old ways, to the old system that they had in the Old Testament. You see, to return to the law would be analogous to asking a butterfly to return to its cocoon. You flew around a little bit, go back. No, he says, you've been set free. If you got saved, the law has delivered you to that place, and now you let it go. You leave it and you move on. Now, that does not mean that you're absolutely free to do whatever you want. In the Spirit of God, you're free to do whatever you want. Because if the Spirit of God dwells in you, He will guide you and He will lead you in every direction that He desires you to go. So here's a question for us. Number one, have you been set free by this gospel? Have you been set free by the gospel of grace? Have you trusted that message of the gospel? You see, if you haven't, then Paul says you're a fool. And don't, you don't have to be a fool. Accept the message of the crucified Savior and be saved. And that describes you. Don't leave today before you talk to one of us. Because your eternity is at stake. Because if you reject this gospel, this has eternal consequences. Not only for this life, but they're eternal, forever. And those of us who are saved, let me ask you, are you living in this freedom? Perhaps you might think that, yes, the Lord has saved me, and yes, I can only be saved because I believe in the message of the gospel. But are you now trying to earn your merit or trying to earn somehow your standing before God by your obedience? Or are you trusting the Spirit to lead you and to guide you in the way He desires you to go? Listen to this quote. You can always tell a legalist, because to a legalist, everything in the Christian life is I ought or I should, instead of I want to. Grace-based Christians obey because it is their delight. Law-based Christians obey because it is their duty. Obedience is certainly our duty as Christians, 
But duty alone, without love behind it, can degenerate into routine. Grace-based Christians obey and love it. Does this describe you? I mean, if it does not, return to the gospel and remember that your standing is absolutely secure, not because of your works, but because of the works of Christ. And you ask the Spirit to guide you, to empower you, to obey the commands that He commands you to do. And guess what? There's enough commands that He commands you to do in the Old Testament. You don't have to go to the Old Testament law to find out how you ought to be holy. There's plenty of commands in the New Testament, even the book that we're studying here. So may God help us. May God help us believe this gospel and live every single day, not according to our rules, but according to His rules. Not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that no one here would be foolish. I pray that no one here would turn from this message and decide to do it on their own. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would empower us to be obedient to you, to walk a walk of sanctification and obey the commands that you have for us in the power of the Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.